Blog Talk Radio. SUAS News podcast series where we try to bring you news and information about uh, the our positive potential uses for unmanned aircraft systems. I'm your host Patrick Egan, and our co-host is also on board, Gene Robinson. Hey, Gene Robinson, how's it going? Great, Patrick. How's everybody out there? It's, we're doing good. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. Gene was gone last week. He were down there at the the NIST thing uh, with Steve Morris. And I wanted to uh, have a little report about that. As I put it last week, you know, um, the people here at SUS News are the people making the news. And so I want to hear a little bit about uh, what, what what transpired down there. And uh, maybe you can, is it possible if you could tell us what, what, uh, what model of aircraft you were flying, stuff like that? Sure. Uh, we were flying the MLB Superbat. And I have to say that uh, our flying sections went exceptionally well. We're working on trying to streamline our process and start our communication down because we are using the, the, the two-man concept or actually more-man concept because we're going to add a payload specialist as well. Mm-hmm. So we did the full pilot in control, pilot at control with observers and uh, streamline that communication, streamline the, uh, the, the pre-flight checklist and uh, how we communicated back and forth once the flights were underway and how we could actually start collecting the science that we needed to collect and we flew every aircraft that we had multiple times and uh, it, it got better each time we did it. We had no mishaps. There were uh, Every flight was just flawless. So the, the owner was happy. Steve was happy. We were very happy as the operator. So it went exceptionally well and, and we're delighted to be involved with it and look forward to doing a lot more with that aircraft. Yeah, he makes uh, some good products. Um, you know, Steve's been around for a while, and I know you guys got a chance to chat. And uh, we're going to try and get Steve maybe next week um, to impart his, what it would take to get me to come to your test center musings uh, for test center proponents. He's got some interesting concepts. You guys probably talked about that. I think it's really refreshing, and uh, it's right up my alley. Um, so that would be uh, that'd be something I think people would be interested in hearing. I'm glad to hear that all went good. I knew it would. You got two pros on the job. You know, you you've been to the rodeo once or twice, right, Gene? Uh, I think once, and the bull thrown me, but that was years ago. Okay, well that's good. So, uh, and the other question I have for you is, uh, how's the book coming along? First to deploy. We are just we are just about there. We're doing some final tweaking. We've done our conversion. We've uh, had a couple of reviews done on it, some peer reviews, and it's getting really good uh, reception out there. And I think it's about ready to roll. And we should be starting distribution next week. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, it's uh, it's fairly large for uh, an iPod book or an e-book, but uh, it's got a lot of information in it, and uh, I'm excited, and I think it's going to be out hopefully next week. Sounds good. I'm I'm waiting for it with bated breath. You know, I'm, I want a uh, signed e-copy. 
Uh, anyway, okay, well that's good. Okay, we'll be we'll be looking for that. And then I also want to I want to talk about that too when it comes out. Maybe we'll do another uh, at least a segment on that. And so moving into the current news, which we like to do every week, uh, what's going on at the SUAS News? Did uh, I don't know if um, anyone else caught uh, Blasty the Magic Drone, but I think that that video pretty much puts public sentiment, uh, neatly packages it in a nutshell. It's worth a look. It's a funny little video, but it's and, and on the other hand, it's a little sad that um, that's kind of how the public views us. But you know, that's up to us as a community to work on changing that perception. And of course, we had the uh, that global hawk go down. So it looks like we didn't put we put no points on the scoreboard this week. Uh, anyway, um, I want to uh, extend a warm welcome to our guests. We have Tim Adelman and Leonard Lagon. Howdy, gentlemen. Hello, Matt. Hey. How you doing? Good to good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, I want to thank you guys for coming on. Um, so I think how we're going to start this out is, is Tim, if, if you could, could you please tell the audience a little about yourself and how you got involved with UAS or RPA or unmanned aircraft, whatever you want to call them. Could you, could you please uh, tell us a little about yourself? Certainly. Uh I got involved with online aircraft through a program I was uh, managing as a contractor with the Department of Justice National Institutes of Justice, which is really the R&D branch of the Department of Justice. And the issue that came up with uh, through NIJ was local, state and local law enforcement needed aviation assets. Uh, but after... Uh, the war in Iraq and overseas, a lot of the guard helicopters which were providing support to state and locals were being called up. And these agencies couldn't afford to go buy their own helicopters or uh, you know high-end aircraft. So they wanted to see, are there alternative aircraft? And we looked at some manned aircraft options. And around that same time, we started also looking at unmanned aircraft systems and how they could help law enforcement. Uh, at, at the time, there was really no one doing the legal side of uh, unmanned aircraft. And as a background, I am uh, an attorney that does aviation law. I'm also a flight instructor uh, for manned aircraft. And then uh, through the program and working with unmanned aircraft system, was you know certified on a few unmanned small systems and got thrown into the mix of law enforcement wants to use unmanned aircraft systems and what are the hurdles to it. And we looked at it both from a technology standpoint as well as a uh, legal standpoint. Uh, and since then, it's just kind of blossomed from there to the point where I am uh, doing a lot of work with various entities looking at the use of unmanned aircraft systems and recently uh, doing a lot of work with NIJ on uh, how do we streamline the process for law enforcement to get uh, to use unmanned aircraft systems and even most recently the outspurt of the privacy issue. So uh, I, I look at it more from the uh, public side than I have from the civil operations side, but that's only because that's who's been knocking on the door. Right, right. And, uh, you know, we're going to touch on um, some of those subjects that you mentioned uh, as we progress through the show. But let's, uh, okay, we got uh, Leonard, Leonard's on too. And uh, Leonard, I'd like you to kind of uh, give the audience a little background on yourself and how you got into this. And then we're going to dive right in to the uh, deep end of the pool. Certainly. Um, first, let me uh, 
say uh, to Tim, uh, with regard to Tim's uh, uh, qualifications, one of the things that uh, he didn't mention that uh, he is probably one of the leading uh, attorneys that specializes in public aircraft uh, and public aviation, and uh, probably one of the leading ones in the country. And, and uh, although he uh, he did touch on that, I just wanted to compliment and say that uh, uh, it, it's hard to find anybody that can talk with the kind of authority he can on that. That said, um, I was uh, back in 1993. I was active duty Army, and uh, the unit I belonged to did testing of, of onesie, twosie, small devices, and we started working with unmanned aircraft. Uh, the FAA and Albuquerque Center came to us uh, as we started working with unmanned aircraft and told my unit, uh, you guys are going to have to find a place to fly these things, and you're going to have to come up with an airspace manager, and uh, why not just call them a UAV airspace manager? Uh, consequently, back in 1993, we started the my, the unit I belonged to started the very first DoD uh, UAV test range, and uh, I was consequently named the very first uh, DoD UAV airspace manager. Uh, from that point on, uh, we uh, picked up a fellow by the name of Glenn Whip when he retired from the FAA, and Glenn, uh, with 36 years of, of air traffic control and rules and procedures under his belt, uh, became uh, my teacher and my mentor, and for the next 10 years, I tucked myself in tight under the wing of Glenn Whip, uh, whereupon uh, uh, he just taught me just volumes of, of uh, airspace and uh, FAA and what all that means. Consequently, uh, uh, for those next 10 years, I worked uh, probably 25 different COAs with over 30 different systems from the hand-launched all the way to the Global Hawk. And uh, presently, I am the uh, um, the airspace integration lead for the uh, uh, BAMS uh, integration, integrated test team program. Uh, the new BAMS uh, bird is called the Triton now, not the Global Hawk. Uh, and I work uh, very closely with educational institutions and public safety uh, elements around the country, uh, helping them uh, get the uh, wheels on the ground for their program. And uh, the University of Alaska has asked me to come on board uh, and uh, help them uh, with significantly more time as well. Uh, that's excellent. And it, you know, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna bang on the drum about uh, the people that we have on here these these podcasts. You you, you know, this, the the gang that's making the news. And and uh, for a little backstory for the audience benefit. I met both of you gentlemen at the UAS 2009 in Paris. It was 2009, wasn't it? Been to a few of those. I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, yeah, I, I, so. I recall that. And I think we were all <laughs> the little uh, sidebar that most people were having at that meeting was, uh, you know, everybody was kind of expressing their displeasure with the snail's pace that the FAA was working at, and uh, there were some other subjects that were discussed. It's kind of funny that um, uh, here we are, 2012. We're, we're we're still waiting for some action. That's a little bit frustrating. Um, it is kind of funny, too, that here we are. It's 2012, and, and that's going to bring us right into really the um, first topic of the day and the streamlined COA process. 
and the schlemecki has been flying around about that new COA process. I know personally I was involved in something this week where um, uh, some people wanted to put together a training program, a manufacturer. Uh, they had a system they were going to sell to, uh, let's say, public safety officers. We got hot cakes we're selling here. Uh, you're not going to be able to keep up with uh, what's in the hopper, yada, yada, yada. And they wanted me to come up with a training program and manuals and procedures and checklists and all the rest of that stuff. And I'm saying, no, you know, we, we have time because they're going to have to go out there and get COAs. And, you know, it came back to me uh, that the, the manufacturer was saying, no, if you fly under 200 feet, you don't need a spotter. You can fly under AMA rules, yada, yada. They, they changed the COA thing. There's no real COA anymore, which did not pass my Shinola test. So I guess that's going to segue like right into where we're at because I I had uh, discussed with Gene um, we we had kind of batted back the streamlined process with the training co et cetera and maybe Gene you can you can just uh, bring the audience up to speed on that conversation we had about the streamlined sure. co. Sure, this is based on some information that I've received recently because I've applied for several coas for several different agencies. And uh, since the ruling, the 90 days from the ruling or the FAA reauthorization were uh, supposed to allow the law enforcement first responders and fire to get a COA or the ability to fly easier. Well, that may be the case, but it's for the 4.4 or the 2 kilo kilo, uh, unmanned aircraft, and that is essentially a training COA still. Uh, as you know, they're, most of the COAs that are out now are for training or research and development. So they've started this, and, and, and uh, Tim, you would probably be able to, to give a little bit more background on this since you're closer to the hill, but uh, you are to train with the small unmanned aircraft, and then you are to advise the FAA when you feel like you've reached proficiency. <laughs> I feel I proficient today. Rather- Strange that uh, you get to decide when you're proficient because there is no real vehicle for us to be able to determine, well, I put in X number of hours and I only crashed three times, so I'm proficient. And uh, we've gone X number of hours since those crashes and, and we're good to go and we're going to move up to the, the large aircraft. So, and, and that is it's still to get the training COA, from what I understand, it's still looking, you're looking at eight months to get it when it's supposed to be a 60-day process. And uh, do you guys, Tim or, or, or Leonard, do you got any other information contrary to that? Yeah, I can give you I can give you quite a bit of information. Uh, I sat in all the conversations for the streamlined COA process. So uh, I'd be more than happy to give you uh, the, uh, the forest and then the trees view. Um, one of the things that initially happened, I applied for a COA in 08, I believe it was, for uh, Queen Anne's County in Maryland. At the time, they were issuing emergency COAs or specific mission COAs, and I, you know, we, I had gone through this significant legal debate about the authority of the FAA. At that time, I believe the FAA was the single biggest obstacle to unmanned aircraft operations. And I'll get to this later, but I don't believe that's still the truth, And I've, uh, but I'll explain why. What we ended up doing is it took a year and a half to finally get a jurisdiction-wide COA for that county, which allowed us at any time to make a decision we needed to fly the unmanned aircraft system in support of a mission 
and do so with just simple notifications to ATC. We didn't have to get another code. We didn't have to get an emergency code. We didn't have to have anything else done. We said that is the type of COA law enforcement needs. An agency gets an unmanned aircraft system. They need authorization to fly in their jurisdiction when the mission comes up, and they don't know when someone's going to get killed in advance. Otherwise, they'd be extremely effective at stopping the killing. So these things come up. And so what we looked at on the co-op process was one of the things I kept finding out when I worked with clients and talked to clients who were using this is applying for COA is a lot like going into a room, turning off the lights, and then having someone put a dartboard on the wall and giving the guy three darts and say, hit a bullseye. You throw the dart, and if you hit the bullseye, we'll tell you. But if you don't, we're not going to tell you how close or how far away you are. And that was what final COA was all about. You just th- you, you submitted something, and they said, nope. And you say, well, what's wrong? Well, it's not what we wanted. Well, what'd you want? Not that. And so the next thing you found out was, well, well, how, give me some guidance. So we said to them, if you, we we argued about not having the COA, but one of the things when we brought the agencies together, they said, is listen, we don't mind having some COA where the FAA can come to us and say we've reviewed what you're doing and we think it's we. And we deem it to be a safe operation because from a liability standpoint, that really helps out the local law enforcement agency. So that was something that they were okay with. But they weren't okay with throwing darts in a dark room and not knowing where the dartboard is. So the streamlined co-op process does a number of things. It, first of all, it's going to automate a lot of the process. Now if you go and file a COA, if you've done this, you know you've got to put all the specific information about the aircraft and feet per minute, et cetera. And regardless of the fact that the FAA already has COAs on the exact same aircraft. So we want all the aircraft that are being used to be on a drop-down menu. Manufacturers will be able to tell the FAA, here's the data for the COA. Put it into your database. We can do a drop-down menu. They can click it. That right there saves you a fair amount of time because it will also include all of those attachments which have your ground station description, your your lost link procedures, your frequencies, all that information will already be on there. So the only thing that you're adding on there is where do you want to operate, who's your point of contact, and then uh, why you're operating this aircraft. So what they call it is their safety risk management plan essentially um, or assessment plan. So basically the FAA is going to give us a model version of this. And as an agency, I will get a model version, and I just have to basically cut and paste what I'm going to be doing from that and submit it. So it's going to take a lot of the guesswork out of it. And in addition, we are now getting, agencies are getting COAs within 60 days. So the time limit has come down. They really have focused on this. And they've been beat over the head pretty hard. You know, first it was with a golf club, then a bat, then, you know, a sledgehammer, and now it's, you know, the 800-pound gorillas pounding on them saying, you got to fix this. And they are now. They, and I can tell you the folks that I've worked with in the UAPO or what an airspace integration office now, I'm in aircraft, um, have been excellent. There was a We sat in a meeting three, two years ago, and they said, we were told to come here to find a way to make law enforcement operations work. And we said, okay, great. 30 minutes later, we were steaming out of our ears, ready to storm out because they didn't know what the hell they were doing there. What? The FAA not know what they're doing? <laughs> we got like a call they... a month later of, and apologizing. And from that day forward, it's been an extremely effective and good working relationship. Um, and I don't believe, and I, and I think if you dug further, you would find out that the FAA is not really the agency 
or the reason why it's taking so long to get integration. Are you mean with the uh, the SFAR or just in general? Uh, well, in, in general, uh, there is a significant political element to this uh, that really has come to light over the past five months and really is part of the FAA Reauthorization Act. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people interpreted that act as saying, unmanned aircraft systems are going to be used by everyone all the time, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you got the privacy fights. Mm -hmm. Then you got politicians involved. Then you got uh, OMB and GAO and DOJ and uh, FAA all saying, don't do anything right now. Right. Wait. And so it, it, it threw this whole thing into a political mess, whereas before it was a technical mess. Right. I, so I it's would... still a bit of a technical mess, Tim, when you consider that, for example, in ACOA that I applied for, for an agency here, they've asked me to provide documentation that uh, the county is a taxing entity from the uh, district attorney, or the attorney general, excuse me. Uh, yeah, that, me, that, that whole situation... Yeah, that whole situation is a, is a mess. So the streamlined co-op process is not in place right now. Uh, they're, they've reached the agreement, but the problem is there's got to be some build-out. They've got to actually change the online co-op program uh, to accommodate all the changes that, we, that we've asked them to make. And it's a lot of language changes as well as, well as checkboxes, drop-down menus. In addition, uh, there's a couple other things we're going to do, one of which is a knowledge test. NIJ... Uh, has accepted responsibility for developing a UAS public safety operator's knowledge test, which will be an online exam. Uh, and so it, they're basically going to take a lot of what's – they're taking the private pilot exam and gutting out all the stuff that doesn't apply to unmanned aircraft operations and going to make it more of a specific – So they're, and add a few more questions – to make it more specific to unmanned aircraft operations. Um, they, the thing – that. The interesting thing about that, which the, I think the industry will be interested in, is that while we're going to create the test, we're not going to, at this point, create the books and the study materials and the ground school. So, so hopefully someone else will come along, and we would expect that uh, the private industry will come along and help be able to provide those training courses and everything. So that to the extent that you do want to take this test and you don't have a base knowledge, that you have a resource to go out there and get that type of knowledge. And who's uh, so the streamlined co-op process is not in place yet. Well, there's two things there. The uh, I, I saw the press release where the FAA came out and said that you know the, the streamlined thing was happening, so I guess it was a little premature. And then the other thing is uh, who who's working that uh, is that like a committee that's working that that online test thing? Because you know which, uh, the reason I ask is the R Kappa had uh, the Remote Control Aerial Photography Association had a program in place where we were already doing that. Uh, prior to the 2007 edict and, you know, gave all that information to the uh, FAA and they did look at it and say, hey, that's kind of an interesting idea. And I'm, I'm just kind of, I guess what I'm wondering is I'm, I'm kind of interested to see maybe mechanically how that's working. Is it possible for me to um, talk to somebody about that? Is it a committee thing? Is it one person? Yeah, we should definitely follow up. I'd love to get some information on what other people have done. The there is, I wouldn't say there's a committee. Uh, you know, I, I am assisting and leading the charge on this one, uh, partly. 
but uh, they, NIJ has got some contractors that are going to step in, and basically what we're doing is going to the FAA saying these are the subject matters we're going to cover. FAA says we agree those are the subject matters, then we'll build out the test and give the test to the FAA, and FAA say we agree that's the appropriate test. All right, yeah, because uh, we uh, we uh, with with the process that we came up with, and I don't want to toot the horn too hard, but the process that we came up with actually, um, we got a uh, insurance company to buy into those online tests, and basically it, the concept was you could it was information you could find on the uh, FAA's own website, you know basic airspace, other things like that. And uh, was, it was able, that made it possible for us to get a million dollars worth of liability insurance for our members. Each member could, you know, go out and actually... And that's great information. Insurance. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent it, information. I, I think that's one of the problems in the UAS industry is that there are so many uh, disjointed uh, segments of the industry that don't have great communication. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the public side and the civil side are very different. And I see that when something comes out on the public side, the civil side is looking very closely, um, but they do have substantial differences. And as such, uh, and it's the fault of the public community, is that we don't look to the civil side as often as we should to say, hey, you guys, you know, you are, you're already doing this work in preparation for integration, let us borrow some of your stuff. And that's something that we should, as a, as a whole entire community, uh, leverage better, uh, but, but they haven't in the past. Well, let's, you know, let's uh, take that conversation offline because I think that, um, you know, I, I'd like to share the information that we have. I think there's some good stuff there. Again, you know, was, we were kind of thinking in the beginning that it was rudimentary, but when, uh, you know, a, a big insurance company said, hey, you know, we'll we'll insure this technology up to, you know, they, they, there was really no weight limit. They were ready to go in whole hog. I was like, okay, well, that's confirmation that we did something right. So let's we'll, we'll talk about that offline because... You know, we've been chatting here enjoyably for already almost half an hour, believe it or not. So I want to keep the ball rolling. The conversation is really good. And I just wanted to give uh, Leonard a a chance on this COA thing. Leonard, uh, if you had anything you wanted to add from up there and the uh, close to the, the Arctic Circle, you got anything? Well, I'm down in Albuquerque right now. Um, Okay, you were up to Alaska. No. yeah, no, I was up. In, I was up. Yeah, sixty miles from the Arctic Circle for the last two weeks, and I'll be going back up there soon. But uh, as I, I'm very uh, interested in seeing how this online co-op process is going to work, uh, the streamline, because uh, currently uh, I'm working two coas, um, and there's a lot of elements that are missing uh, that we need to to be able to see on those. Um, and uh, and I guess uh, the biggest frustration that I've had from the beginning, and, and Patrick, I remember seeing you at the uh, when the RTCA uh, first started up. Uh, I was a member of the RTCA for the first three years, and I believe I saw you there also those same first three years. And uh, wasn't seeing a lot getting done on uh, on how how to progress the, every, everything. And, and I was real glad just now to hear Tim say that uh, uh, two years ago. Um, uh, somebody turned on a light there at the UAPO, um, and uh, uh, they started to come around and say, "Hey, we're ready to listen to you now," uh, because that to, that's part of the problem that I've seen uh, up until now is that there's been 
two separate, two distinct offices or two distinct FAAs. One, the FAA, which has a monumental job uh, uh, to provide uh, for the safety of all the airspace users, and, and their job is a hard job, especially with the buzz of unmanned aircraft coming into the mix. Um, they've got a they've got a real a real responsibility that uh, um, they're still trying to get their head around. And then there's the UAPO, which is now the UASIO. I hope the UASIO uh, 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 approaches a little different than than the old UAPO did, which was basically um, uh, we'll let the FAA tell us what to do, and then we'll interpret how how that needs to happen. And uh, and uh, consequently. Uh, uh, what happened was while the law uh, made it very clear and, and Nick Sabatini uh, uh, made it very clear uh, when he spoke to Congress back in 2002 that there's uh-huh. a clear distinction between public aircraft and civil or commercial aircraft and that uh, the public aircraft industry uh, would be uh, self-governing uh, and self-certifying uh, through all things public aircraft um, the UAPO refused to allow that to take root, uh, while the FAA uh, would sit there and, and watch them and say, okay, well, you guys got the ball on this. Just know that if this ever goes to, to battle, we're going to lose. Uh, mm-hmm. We may be an 800-pound gorilla, but, but the, we're still going to lose this one uh, if, if this goes to battle. So consequently, um, I, I saw... As I said, there's two two different FAAs. People would say the FAA say I can't do that. Well, the FAA says you can do that. It's the UAPO who says you can't do that, uh-huh. and and that was where we where a lot of us got our sour grapes and the, the sour taste in our mouth uh, with regard to the FAA. The FAA has been doing a fabulous job, a great job, and 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 uh, you know I've been working closely with the FAA now for going on 20 years. And uh, and I, I can't uh, give them enough credit, but the UAPO seems to somehow sidestep and take a different path all too often and say, well, we don't want you doing that because. Well, what do you mean because? Give us give us the reason for the because. Well, the because well, we can't tell you because there's no definition. We just we just say because. Right. So it's, it's been a revolving door too in that office for several years. Well, well I mean, hopefully they got you know they got some great guys up there you know uh, Stephen Blewicki for uh, I got to give him he's he's one of the guys who's who's been up there since the very beginning back uh, since uh, Rick Hostetler stepped out of the role and John Timmerman stepped in and, and Stephen was was one of the few people who's still there today um, and and I and I got to say it's I, I got to give it to him his his level headedness he he uh, approaches things with reason he listens. Uh, he's highly intelligent, uh, but sometimes even he is told to sit down and shut up in color, I believe. Yeah, well, I, I hear a lot of that goes on. I, the frustration with that uh, is, is, you know, and I've been going on, and I'm sure, uh, you know, if you guys have known me and been around long enough, so I've been kind of beating on them for many years now, I think since 2005 with this, well, you know, we got to have some data. we got to have some data. we got to have data. Okay. It sounds good. You know, what are you that's, looking that's, for? That's fine, and, that's fine and good. And, you know, the, the data is going to go and support the, the civil commercial uh, side of things as they, as they progress and uh, start breaking into the airspace for commercial purposes. Um, 
but but the public aircraft side, you know, when the FAA decided to call unmanned aircraft or, or UAVs, air vehicles, when they decided right. to call them aircraft so that they could regulate them, what, what I believe they didn't see was by identifying them as aircraft, the minute the public agency put their own moniker on it, calling it a public aircraft, it then created a whole new uh, can of worms for the UAPO that they were not prepared to deal with. So by calling them aircraft, um, they may have been able to get what they wanted in, in determining how to regulate unmanned aircraft, but they opened a can of worms that they couldn't uh, put the lid back on, a kind of a Pandora's box, because now with the law and uh, you know uh, saying that uh, uh, you know the, the statutes say that the public aircraft uh, owner d doesn't need to get certified, he doesn't need to do certain things, uh, he doesn't need the license uh, uh, per the way we say it has to be done, um, then uh, that opened up a can of worms on them that they're trying to get their head around. Now, now I see them groping in the dark, like, like Tim said, throwing, throwing the darts uh, in a dark room. Um, and, uh, you know, one example uh, came to light uh, last week. I was talking to somebody who, who uh, wanted to go and uh, operate their unmanned aircraft, and they were told, well, you didn't, uh, uh, you have to have uh, pilots with, with uh, FAA licenses. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I'm using government employees to operate these things. Yeah, but, but your, your training program and your certifications uh, don't meet um, uh, our standards. Well, we don't care about your standards. We've determined that uh, for the type of UAV we've got, it's small, it's safe, it's you know, it's four and a half pounds. We can snatch it out of the air, and it's it's always within line of sight. This is how we're going to do it. So we're self-certifying and we're self-governing on on that. And uh, they were told what I was told. And of course, this is all secondhand. Is that no, you can't do that because you're not a Title Ten authority. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. Now, now you're telling us that public aircraft have to be DOD and DOD only, or DHS, a Title Ten authority? No, uh, it's that, that's not how the law breaks it down. It says public and and private or civil, and those right. are the only two qualifiers out there. And right. again, the FAA agrees with that. The UAPO doesn't agree with that. Consequently, we have two disparate uh, uh, offices uh, trying to run their own programs. Uh, the FAA is right because, uh, you know, the general counsel's office will be the first one to come in and say, this is a distinction that we have to uh, follow when we, uh, when we address this in court, when we address this to Congress, when we address it to the law. The UAPO says, well... We don't like that. We're not going to do that, and our charter is to, you know, I mean, obviously their charter is safe flight, and, and, right. and we, you know, we can sympathize with that, but don't micromanage me. Let me take the mantle of responsibility. If I'm a government agency, let me take that mantle of responsibility and the weight of that responsibility, and if I'm willing to do that, let me hold that on my shoulders. And then, consequently, right. when Congress comes down and says, you know, how did you crash into that school bus full of nuns? Uh, when they look at the FAA, the FAA can now say, hey, we advised them. We strongly advised them not to do that, but it was on them. They, they took the, the mantle of responsibility themselves. 
Yeah, well, I think you know you're dealing with a situation where I mean this has been their game, and this is this this is runs the gambit here, moving targets. And just like you said, they opened the Pandora's box and people are concerned and what are we going to do? I think every time they make a step, they think, well, if we do this, you know, you're going to let this activity loose. Then we're going to have a flood of this activity come in. And whatever the case, I don't, you know, maybe that I'm, I'm speculating as far as what their mindset is. There's a lot at play there. Um I think, and I have to be honest, all along, one of the big problems with the UAPO and uh, the new UASIO, or whatever they're calling it this week, is a lack of um, experience with unmanned aircraft systems. And yeah. you know, it, it, that has been a real stumbling block for them. I know now everybody's getting trained on small UAS, and it's the uh, AeroVironment product line, which is kind of a drag. And I wanted to get into the preferred vendor list and all the rest of that. So we're going to move along because we only got about eight minutes left. And I wanted to talk about the timely subject of, of the privacy thing. And, mm. and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I, I think that, you know, not that it's much ado about nothing, but I think that we really got to go out there and educate the public that a lot of this stuff um, that's going on now or, or is proposed with unmanned aircraft is already allowed with manned aircraft. You know, I mean, you can um, take pictures in navigable airspace now or, you know, certain operations, the, the public operations that are happening now and will happen in the future with unmanned aircraft will be governed in kind of the same way. And I kind of wanted to get Tim's take on it. So maybe, Tim, could you could you speak to that? Certainly. I think one thing to, to know right off the bat is there was a bill introduced in the Congress yesterday and one or mm -hmm. two days ago, one by a senator yesterday on Preserving Freedom for Un Unwarranted Surveillance Act of 2012, which is targeted at – the way it reads is I believe they're targeting at federal law enforcement agencies. The concern is while this statute would only target federal law enforcement, it would be used by states to enact similar legislation, and then people would ex try to extend it beyond that to civil operations. Um, there is no reason, for, first of all, for a, a separate act – we already have extremely well-established law on search and seizure. Your Fourth Amendment gives you the right to be protected from unlawful search and seizure. And then there is a whole host, I mean, hundreds of court opinions that say, what does that mean? What are the parameters? And we've gone through it with technology. So there is a lot of stuff out there about what are the parameters out there for search and seizure. And one of the things is, you know, we, we've got aircraft, first of all. We've already litigated the cases about flying over and looking in someone's backyard. We've litigated the cases about using IR sensors to look into someone's, uh, to look at the heat signature off of someone's house. We've litigated the use of, you know, uh, GPS trackers on cars. We've litigated the use of other technologies to observe individuals. And when is it a search and when do you require a warrant and when is it not? Um, the the upcry on privacy, you know, is twofold. There is a component of it that says law enforcement is all of a sudden this, you know, Stalin secret police that's going to go out there and observe you all the time, which is not reality, but if people want to believe that, okay, we have laws to protect you from that. And so that isn't going to be happening. And if it does, you've got laws to protect your rights and to have them enforced. So we don't need anything new. The other fear is these civilians are going to use it. And, that, and you know, when I argue about the law enforcement, well, what about the civil side? And I recently wrote an article in there, and I saw a few people comment on it about, I said in there, well, if you made it 
a, if you had a regulation that made it a crime to inappropriately use an unmanned aircraft system to spy on someone, to take photographs and sell them for personal gain or something of that nature, that may be a way to help enforce privacy. And I think what people have to understand is there's definitely going to have to be at some point a give and take on the civil side because we don't have the Fourth Amendment and all the other court opinions about that. There's going to have to be at some point a framework put in place for when can the civil side use this technology because right now a lot of aircraft can't have a gimbal put on it for a civil person to use without getting either an STC or an extremely expensive camera that they can't afford. But people can go out and make even home-built unmanned aircraft systems and use them to take photographs, etc. And uh, at some point there will have to be a discussion about, okay, the public side should already have sufficient body of law taking into account the use of this technology. The civil side doesn't. And I think if the civil side were to come to the table and say, we understand the concern, and we're willing to agree to X or whatever it is, a, a, a penalty for unlawful use of this to you know take someone's pictures and sell them on the Internet. If you If you did something of that nature, I think you would substantially alleviate a lot of concerns. Um, but with no framework in place, uh, it really is going to be used against the civil community for operations. Right. We're already seeing it in public. Very common sense approach. And, and all of that makes sense. But like I was saying, I mean, you know, I, I was having this conversation yesterday in my own living room, but I don't think people understand like those, you know, and last week I'd kind of suggested as, as homework that, or maybe the week before that people go out there and Google or YouTube like MX-15 or Flare, Seastar, Sapphire and see what the capabilities are already. You know, these gimbal EOIR sensors that we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, it can be seen from you know 15 nautical miles out. You know, uh, people could could watch you, and, and and there's a lot of misnomers as far as uh, people having their heads about this surveillance thing. But I do think that a lot of the laws that are on the books are going to overlay onto unmanned aircraft, and we need to, as a community, kind of. I guess get out there and, and put the word out to the public, and, and kind of uh, you know ease some of the fears that they have. Now, we're getting close to the two-minute warning, as I like to call it, and we've covered some good ground, and we've had really some good conversation. And the thing that I wanted to touch on, and I think that our, our, our listeners and readers are going to be interested in, and Tim, maybe you could talk to this, uh, we hear about that, and you kind of spoke about the uh, NIJ, DOJ, uh, vendor list, which is the like the drop-down menu, which is going to be part of the automated system for the FAA and the COA thing. Uh, possibly, you know, assume that I'm a manufacturer and I make the, um, you know, water bottle 2000 unmanned aircraft and I want to get it on that list. How do I go about getting uh, my aircraft and its capabilities, whatever, onto that list? The the short answer is once an agency files a COA with that aircraft, it'll go onto the list. Okay. Um, so the the goal is the FAA is taking these aircraft. When a COA is filed, we say, okay, you've seen one Arian Scout. Now you've seen four or five of them. 
why do we have to insert each of these scouts individually? Why can't we just have it be just one, air, you know, a drop-down menu for that? So as an agency applies, the but the bigger question you're getting to is, and I'll try and do this as quickly as possible, NIJ has a standard for ballistic vests. They create mm-hmm. a standard that says if you want to, if you're a law enforcement agency, you want federal funding to buy a vest, you have to get one that's NIJ approved, which is done at a third-party lab that assesses it and NIJ credits that. We've been talking about trying to do the same for unmanned aircraft systems, which is to take a standard and then to certify labs across the country or test sites, however you want to do it, to say a manufacturer gives their aircraft to that test site, pays them, you know, whatever it is, and that test site will verify that it meets this standard. And when it does that, they'll issue a certificate that says this meets the standard by NIJ. And then the goal would be in that, it would give okay. that agency Tim, comfort. Tim, I, I hate to catch off. We're, we're at about 24 seconds. Yep. Excellent conversation. Um, I do want to try and uh, maybe talk to you tomorrow on the phone if we can sidebar me and you. I, I want to thank everyone for being on the call. Excellent conversation. As usual, uh, I think you guys, both uh, you and Leonard, brought a lot of uh, good information to the table. I appreciate you guys being on. Thanks a lot, and we will see everyone next week. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you.